want to start with a quote from a man named Yaroslav Pelikan, a theologian of the 20th century, that has been sticking with me, and you'll hear it more than once today and probably this evening as well. He said this, tradition is the living faith of the dead. Now think about that for a minute. Tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. Tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. I start with that quote not just because it's just been stuck in my mind because there's such a profound truth that is contained in it. The profound truth is contained in it is a human observation. See, last week we focused on a particular problem in the first century that Jesus was addressing. He was addressing Pharisees that had a tradition. Their tradition was that before they ate, they carefully, ceremonially washed their hands. This was not good hygiene. It was not, we need to get the germs off. It was, we need a ceremonial, ritual, moral cleansing before God as we come to eat this food. And this tradition that they had embraced over decades, over centuries, over generations had become this inflexible doctrine that was accorded the same or even a higher place than the word of God. And Jesus absolutely unmasks them. When they come to him and they say, why don't your disciples wash their hands before they eat? Now, it appears sometimes that they did. And sometimes they didn't. In fact, if you were to read Luke 11, you would see that Jesus himself went to a Pharisee's house, went to a religious leader's house, and didn't wash his hands before he ate. And the guy was blown away. His host was blown away. Why, why, why didn't you do that? Jesus was intentionally sometimes poking at their tradition in certain specific ways to send a message. He'd intentionally violate their tradition. Now, Jesus told them, he unmasks them, he says, why do you violate the word of God to hold to your own tradition? He says, you're just like Isaiah prophesied. You draw near me with your mouth, with your lips, but your heart is far from me. It's a million miles away. And notice something that's interesting here that he says in two places, both in verse 8 and in verse 13. He says, for laying aside the commandment of God, ye hold the tradition of men as the washing of pots and cups and many other such like things you do. In other words, I'm not just talking about washing your hands. I'm not just talking about washing your pots and your cups in a ceremonial way. I could give you a whole lot of other examples in which you're doing the same thing. Then he gives them one example, the example of Corbin. We talked about this a little bit last week. We'll get into a little bit more this week. He gives them another example of how they have laid aside the word of God, the command of God, and held to their own tradition. And then notice what he says in verse 13. And many such like things do ye. 
I could give you a whole bunch of other examples of the way you are using your own tradition to enforce your own dead faith. Now, my question for you this morning is, is, is this. Is this simply a first century problem? Or is it a 21st century problem too? Were the Pharisees the only ones that could fall into a kind of traditionalism that reflected a dead faith of living people? Are they the only ones that can hold to what has been passed down from generation to generation that is the word of men, not the word of God, and by doing so actually subvert, actually invalidate the real truth of God's word? Are they the only ones that could fall into that trap? And I hope you understand the answer is no. This is a 21st century problem just as much as it was a first century problem. Now, the simple point that I want to make here as we begin is this. We're not talking here about traditions that expressly violate God's word. We're not talking about traditions in which man says, God said yes, but our tradition says no. You understand that. Nothing in God's word prohibited the Jews from washing their hands before they ate. There was no prohibition against it. It was permitted. It was permitted. You could do it if you want. And we're not talking about any tradition in which God's word says, no, thou shalt not, and man's tradition says, yes, thou shalt. We're not talking about those traditions. I hope that as a, I trust a well-taught congregation, we would understand if any of our traditions were expressly violating the commands of God's word. I think we would be clear on that. I'm not aware of any tradition that we hold here at Straight Gate Church that would be in direct opposition to the word of God. And if it were, may God show us and give us the wisdom to change it immediately. I'm talking about this, exactly the type of circumstance that was dealt with here. When man's tradition is not directly in conflict with God's word, but nonetheless can actually invalidate or nullify the force of God's word. As Jesus says to them in verse 13, you have made the word of God of none effect through your tradition. Do you know our tradition, traditions that we love, traditions that we think in many ways can be helpful, do you know our tradition could ultimately one day make the word of God of none effect in our church? At least in particular areas? Now, I hope all of us would say, may it never be. God Forbid, yes. And so what we need to ask ourselves today, last week we saw a tradition trap. The Pharisees fell into this trap in their own first century culture, in their own first century way of thinking that their tradition could justify violating the principles of the word of God, that their tradition somehow elevated them in a spiritual way, even though their heart was far from God. That was a trap, and it's a trap for all of us. But today, I want to look at something I'm going to call a tradition test. A tradition test. I think these 13 verses from Jesus give us a framework for assessing our own traditions, our own traditions as a church, our own traditions as a family, our own traditions as a culture. None of which, as we said last week, 
are inherently right or wrong, as long as they are not directly in contradiction to God's word. I gave as an example last week the way that I traditionally dress here when I come to preach God's word. I can tell you for certain there is no command in scripture that says a preacher shall get up wearing a coat and tie when he comes to church on Sunday morning. There's no such command in the Bible. Does the Bible permit us to do so? Yes. Now, why do we do so? Why do I dress in this way? Well, there is something that in the way that I approach a God that is worthy of all honor in the world, that is the greatest God, the greatest dignitary, there is a sense in which when I put on this kinds of clothing, I am saying to him, I am showing honor to you. I am showing respect to you in what I wear. And that's why we do it. There is something that has been passed down to us as a tradition of this means. We have had a pulpit up here for how many decades when we have preached here at Straight Gate Church? This may be the same pulpit that we had, for all I know, when we moved in in 1987. There's a tradition. Our service times, our Wednesday evening prayer meeting. These things are traditions that are not commanded in the word of God, but certainly are permitted. So how are we going to think about our traditions and whether we will fall into the same trap that the Pharisees did? Let me suggest to you three things, three tests that we should apply to our traditions to determine whether we might fall into the same 21st century problem that the Pharisees were guilty of in the first century. The first thing that we, should, that we should test has to do with a distinction. A distinction. And here is the test. Do we clearly distinguish between what is God's word and what is man's word? Do we clearly distinguish between what is God's word and what is man's word? Now, where does this come from the text? Because ultimately, we need all of this test to be grounded in the text of our Bible. Let's go back to our text very quickly here, and we'll look at this together. We see in verse 1, the Pharisees come to Jesus and certain of the scribes which came from Jerusalem. And they, in verse 2, they saw some of his disciples, they, and they were eating bread with defiled, not dirty, but morally, in the, in the Pharisees' view, morally defiled hands, unwashing hands. They found fault. They were critical. For the Pharisees and all the Jews, except they wash their hands oft or often, eat not, holding the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the market, except they wash, they eat not. And many other things there be, which they have received to hold, as the washing of cups and pots, brazen vessels and of tables. All these different traditions of the Pharisees. And the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why walk not thy disciples according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? Last week we looked in, in, at what Jesus' indictment of them was. Notice verse 6. He answered, Well has Isaiah, or Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites. You're just actors. As it is written, this people honoreth me with their lips. They know how to say the right words, but their heart is far from me. They don't have an actual love for me. Howbeit in vain, it's empty, do they worship me. Their worship is, is, is unprofitable, it's worthless. Why? Because they're teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, ye hold the tradition of men as the washing of pots and cups and many other such like things ye do. 
Now notice in verse 9. And he said unto them, full well you reject the commandment of God, the commandment of God, that ye may keep your own tradition. Now how does verse 10 start? For who? For Moses said, now go ahead to verse 11. How does verse 11 begin? But you say, now notice the distinction that Jesus is drawing very clearly. There is what God says, and there's what you say. This is the whole distinction that he's drawing here. Now when he says, when he says Moses said, do you think he's saying, well, that's what man said? No. In fact, in Matthew chapter 15, in Matthew's telling of this story, what Jesus said is, God said, honor your father and your mother. Because that's exactly what's going on here. He calls it the commandment of God. The commandment of God. So notice what he's saying. Moses said, but you say. Now, the first test of our tradition is whether we are going to draw an absolute inviolable wall between what God says and what man says. And any tradition that knocks down that wall between what God says and between what man says is a tradition that we're in some trouble, that we're in real danger on. Now, this goes back to what we're really going to be diving in in more depth tonight, and I hope you'll be able to join us either in person or by our live stream. What is the authority of the Word of God? We talked about this just briefly last week. 2 Timothy 3 says, all Scripture, literally every Scripture, that's the idea of it, every single Scripture is inspired. The picture is God-breathed. Just like you inhale and then you Exhale, God breathed out his word through human agents who faithfully wrote it down. It is God's word. And the ultimate centrality of our faith, you can see it in our statement of faith on our website, is that this book, the 66 books of this Bible of God-breathed word, are the only source that we need for our faith and our practice. This is God's word. A pastor said it this way once, and it, it, was, it, was, it was wonderful. He said, if we were to have a nuclear holocaust, and you and your family were the only ones to survive, and you came with this book, you would have everything you needed to know to please God and have a relationship with him. Think about that for a moment. All the libraries of the world gone. All the commentaries, all the sermons that have ever been preached on God's word, everything from all ages has been destroyed. But you have this book. You would know what you needed to know to have a right relationship with God. Do you believe that? Do you believe that this is the deposit that God has given us that is entirely sufficient for our faith and for our practice? You know there is a reformation about this? That's what that was about. It was about whether it was the Bible or the Bible plus. And I will tell you something, friends. The mark of any false prophet today is whether they are going to tell you that this book is not enough for your faith 
and for your practice. You want to talk about the Mormons? A man named Joseph Smith woke up one day and said, this book is no longer sufficient for our faith and practice. God gave me a special revelation to provide. There was a church that sprouted up. We saw recently being built in our neighborhood just in, um, toward northeast Minneapolis, St. Anthony. It's called the Minnesota Family Church. It seems like a very unobjectionable name. It is uh, Sun Myung Moon. People called the Moonies. You may remember them. Back up, sprouting another church. Sun Myung Moon, what did he say? I'm the Messiah. Jesus didn't finish the work. He was part of it, but he's not all the way. And I've got something to add to this book. Nonsense. The mark of false teaching is when someone tells you that this book is not enough. Now, friends, we can point out at cults, but we should also point the spotlight back at ourselves. Our tradition can sometimes, unless we're careful, be elevated almost as if to the position as if it's God's word. And what we need to carefully say as believers is, no, there is a wall between what is God's word and what is man's. I'd be very clear about what I wear to church. If there is no command in what the Bible says about the way that I wear, that I, what I wear to preach, then I say, what I wear to preach is man's idea. It's not God's. And therefore, I have a clear wall between what is man's and what is God's. And we make sure to, we hopefully will make sure to communicate this. That there's no lack of clarity as the Pharisees would have had of elevating the tradition of man, what has been passed down from man to man to man to man, and elevate it to what God says. You know, this is an example that we see tragically, as I mentioned, the Reformation in the Roman Catholic Church. If you were to ask a Roman, a faithful Roman Catholic today, what do you need in addition to the Bible? They would say, you need the tradition of the church. And in fact, they would even say this, and I actually I'm reading now from the Dei Verbum from Vatican II. This is actually authoritative in the Roman Catholic Church. They say, sacred scripture is the word of God inasmuch as it is consigned to writing under the inspiration of the divine spirit. Okay, so far so good. While sacred tradition takes the word of God entrusted by Christ the Lord and the Holy Spirit to the apostles and hands it on to their successors in its full purity. Now listen to this. I'm quoting. Therefore, both sacred tradition, capital T, and sacred scripture are to be accepted and venerated with the same devotion and reverence. Sacred tradition, sacred scripture, accepted and venerated with the same devotion and reverence. And we say to that, absolutely not. Because what Jesus is telling us is what we, that we distinguish between what God says and between what man says. And any tradition that blurs those lines is destined for disaster. So first of all, do our traditions clearly distinguish, do we clearly distinguish between what is God's word and while it may be helpful, while it may be clarifying, while it may be important or valuable, is nonetheless man's word. Secondly, 
It's not just a question of distinction, but this test is a question of displacement. Displacement. And here's the test. Do we allow our traditions to displace the intent and the effect of God's word? Do we allow our traditions to displace the intent and the effect of God's word? Now, the example that Jesus gives here to demonstrate this is the example of Corbin. And we talked about this last week, but I'll just brush on it. I'll just touch on it this week just so we can come back to our mind and apply it to ourselves. Notice what he says in verse 9. Full well you reject the commandment of God that ye may keep your own tradition. The idea here is there's, there's a kind of irony that Jesus says, you're really clever. You're really clever in how you reject the word of God to keep your own tradition. That's kind of a little bit of the idea. Notice what he says in verse 10. For Moses said, honor thy father and thy mother. That's God's word. And whoso curses father or mother, let him die the death. But ye say, now there's that failed distinction. If a man shall say to his father or mother, it is Corban, that is to say a gift, by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, he shall be free. And ye suffer him no more to do aught for his father or his mother. What's the picture here? Jesus is saying, we have a duty to honor our father and mother. And that means making sure that they are supported in their old age when they are unable to support themselves. And Jesus is saying, when you Pharisees see someone who has a father and mother in need of support, your message to them is to say, if you say, all my possessions that I would have used to support you, mom and dad, are devoted to God. That's what Corbin means, a gift. A gift to God. And this would have been largely the idea of it's devoted to the temple, to the temple worship. We are devoting it to God's service in the temple. If you vow to God, God, all my possessions are yours. They are devoted to your temple. I would have supported you, mom and dad, but I'm sorry, all my possessions are devoted to God. I got nothing else to do for you. Do you know what the Pharisees would have said? That's right. Now, did they have any Bible for this? Do you know Numbers 30 says, if you make a vow to God, you should honor it? Do you know that's what every single one of them would have pointed to? Hey, you made a vow to God. Numbers 30 says you can't break your vow, so don't you dare break your vow to support mom and dad. It's just fine for you to, 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 to have all your goods vested to the temple. By the way, who was at the temple? Who do you think were the ones who would have seen probably a little bit coming their way. They were just happy to, to enforce this kind of system. But what would they have said? No. No, you can't break your vow. Now, this is going exactly what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying the intent of the word of God is to affect the way you live in a way that motivates you toward loving the people that I have called you to love. Honor your father and mother. Love them. Sacrifice for them. And you have imposed a religious tradition, a religious obligation that allows you to sidestep the obligation of God's word, that allows you to evade it, to shortcut around it, and look spiritual in the process. God, I'm all yours. 
Sorry, Mom and Dad. Now, do you see what a destructive thing this is to the force of the Word of God? And it goes back exactly to what Jesus indicted them with in the beginning. He said, you draw nigh me. You, you come close to me with your mouth. We love you, God. We love you. We praise you. We honor you. And your heart is a million miles away. And friends, what we need to be careful with, with our own kinds of tradition, is that our own religious and spiritual traditions can simply be shortcuts to get around the principles of the word of God and do what we want. I gave one last week. The idea that if I'm not really feeling like loving my wife or supporting my family or doing my obligations around the house because I'm feeling selfish, I, I just don't want to be bothered. Do you know how easy it is? I could testify to this myself. Do you know how easy it is for me selfishly to say, I'm sorry, honey, I've got some really spiritual work to do for the church. I've got to go to this event. I've got to go to that service. See you. Good luck. I hope everything gets done. That's selfishness. And I shouldn't excuse that selfishness by saying, sorry, we got this tradition. We got to do it. We got to do it. God's going to look at me and he's going to say, Peter, you made my word of none effect there. You didn't love your wife as Christ left the church. You didn't sacrifice for those needs. You acted selfishly and your heart is a million miles away from me. You see, our tradition can be used by selfish hearts to get around the principles of God in his word and do what we wanted to do all the way along. Do you know the same thing is true in reverse? We should never think there's a false dichotomy that you can't love your wife and do ministry or you can't support your family and, and, and try to win people to Christ. No, nonsense. You know it's going to be the exact opposite. We have a principle. We have a duty in the Bible to, to seek to bring people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And do you know what an easy excuse it would be to say, no, I'm sorry, I can't go out on... Uh, in the parks on Wednesday night because, you know, we really got to have a little bit of family time when really our heart is just that we don't want to. We don't want to win people to Christ. We don't want to minister. It can go exactly the other way too. The point is this. God knows your heart and God knows my heart. God knows whether I'm clinging to some kind of tradition simply as a means of excusing my compliance with the intent and the effect of God's word. And God knows whether my lips are coming close to him. I'm saying the right things. I know how to frame it in a religious, spiritual-sounding way. But in reality, it's just enforcing my own selfishness. It's just enforcing my own failure to make the word of God have its effect in my life. You see, friends, what an utter tragedy it is. And what an incredible deception it is. Some of you may have heard of a man named W.C. Fields. He was a very well-known comedian in the mid-19, early to mid-1900s, known for being a funny man, also known for living basically a reprobate life, just absolutely given to alcohol and to other, um, to other sensual uh, uh, pleasures, so to speak. And it's actually recorded, um, someone wrote after his death that uh, one of his friends went to visit him in his garden when he was ill and shortly before he died. And he, to his shock, he found him reading the Bible. And the person asked him, what, what are you doing reading the Bible? And this famous comedian says, I'm looking for a loophole. I'm looking for a loophole. Now, he may have been joking. I don't know whether truly he, that man ever found salvation in Christ before he died. I hope so. And we can laugh at that. But you know, let's be honest. 
how often am I looking for a loophole from doing the hard things of the Christian life, like loving my enemies, like loving my wife as Christ loved the church, like honoring or respecting my husband, like acting in self, self-denying um, ways toward others. Let's, not, let's make sure that our tradition, our religious spiritual habits are never being used as a shortcut around the effect of God's word. And there's something third here. A distinction, a displacement, and finally, a domination. A domination, and this is very sobering for me as a church leader. Something that never quite jumped out at me until I heard and read something on it. Verse 13, look at verse 13. I'm sorry, verse 12. Verse 12 says in this circumstance, and ye suffer him, or literally, you permit him no more to do aught or anything else for his father or his mother. Do you notice what Jesus is saying here? Jesus is not just holding up the man who is cynically trying to get around doing what God says. Do you know what he actually is saying? These Pharisees wouldn't permit someone to take care of their mother and father if they had vowed that property to God. They would not allow him to do it. They stood as the arbiters and they would say, thou shalt not because you have made a vow. Of course, their deception. If I have devoted my money to God, it would be incredible deception for me to say, and God doesn't want me to support my parents with it. What a deception. Of course God wants me to support. If I've devoted all my money to God, does that mean it has to go to the temple? No, that's the tradition of man. What's the commandment of God? Honor my father and mother. See, that's what the Pharisees should have said. They should have recognized that what God's heart on the matter always was. But you see, what's the difference here? They were enforcing these rules as a means of control, of controlling people who needed to have their own relationship with God. I want you just to, to, to reflect on something here from Matthew chapter 23. You can flip over there if you want, but I'll also read it. Jesus says this about the Pharisees. He says, they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be born, very difficult to bear, and they lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. Do you know what is a characteristic of those churches and those religious movements that are dominated by tradition in a way that becomes traditionalism? It becomes a means of control. And oftentimes it becomes a means of control such that the leadership is able to get what they want out of the people. And we have to recognize, we have to recognize this. Whether it's true of our church or not, we have to be on the lookout that any church, any organization that exalts its leader to the place of saying his word over God's word is in a desperately dangerous position. Listen to what um, Peter says to elders, including me. He says, neither as being lords over God's heritage, not lording it over the people that we are leading and shepherding together, but instead, he says, being examples to the flock. What is our leadership here at Straight Gate Church? Is it the ability for us to say, 
Thou shalt not because I say so. No, our authority is on what God says in this book. And if God says yes or no, then we should stand on it as a church and say, this is what's right and we can do no other. But if God does not say, if what is permitted is not mandatory, is not required, then we as church leadership should be very, very, very cautious to be exercising our control or our domineering in a way as exercising over people's faith. Because ultimately the, the question that God wants from every single one of us is where's your heart? Where's your heart? Don't draw near me just with your mouth. Where's your heart? And when Christian people come to their leadership and just say, tell me what to do. Tell me what to do and I'll do it. What they're missing out on is the real need for them to draw near to God with all their heart and to be convinced of themselves of what God wants them to do. Does that mean I don't want to be a source of counsel, that we as elders don't want to be a source of counsel when you're facing difficult seasons or challenges of life? Of course not. We would love to open the word of God and, and address and help you think through issues biblically and spiritually. That's what we're called to do. But the point is this. It better, you better not be coming to us for man's word when ultimately the word of God is going to be the true source as applied to you by the Holy Spirit. I want you to think about what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1. Listen to what he makes clear to the Corinthians. He says, not for that we have dominion over your faith, but are helpers of your joy. Listen to what Paul is saying. An apostle, he says, we don't, we're not lords over your faith. What are we as church leaders? We are helpers of your joy. And do you know what's very clear distinction in my mind between what is a tradition that can be very helpful and a tradition that can be very harmful? There is a kind of tradition that is a very much a helper of our joy. If you think about the ways I've, I've talked to some of you when we decorate the church for Christmas, we have a tradition of, of decoration and do, and people have said to me, this just is such a wonderful thing. It's such a joy to me when I come in around Christmas and it really helps me come in to the message of Christ's birth. There can be wonderful traditions like that, that, that are helpers of our joy. They are, they are bringing us together in unity and in fellowship, and we are rejoicing together in what God is doing. There are wonderful, fun, fun traditions that we have as a church. Wearing green today or, or wearing orange on a Sunday. Are they God's word? No, they're man's word. Does that make them wrong? No. It can be helpful to our joy and to our unity together to do these things and praise God for those things. But here's the question. Here's the question. Are those things the expression of a living faith and a heart that is walking close to God? Or are they the expression of a dead faith that needs simply to cling to the past because there's no living and vital relationship with God right now. There is a tradition, and friends, we would describe ourselves, the world would describe us as a traditional church. And I embrace it. I don't have any problem with that. There is a wonderful place for tradition in the church of God, and we would not run from that. But with that, 
when we recognize that tradition is the living faith of the dead. Don't you even think about that for a moment? Think about the first person who ever started washing his hands before a meal in the Jewish tradition. What do you think that person was thinking? The priests washed their hands before they went into the temple to recognize that they're sinners and that they need the cleansing of God before they come in and offer sacrifices. You know what? I'm going to do this to remind myself before I eat that I'm a sinner and that I need God's cleansing too. Friends, that was probably really helpful for that person. And it probably was helpful for very many other people to be reminded that they were always in need of God's cleansing before the most daily routines of life. And in that way, Tradition can be living. There is a living faith of those who have gone before that have been passed down to us. But friends, when that comes into a traditionalism in which you and I do not have a living, vital relationship with God, so therefore we must cling to what is past and is only a recognition of our own dead faith. We have fallen into a tradition trap and we have failed a tradition Test. Listen to what Warren Wearsby, a commentator, says. He says, we must constantly beware lest tradition take the place of truth. Lest tradition take the place of truth. It does us good to examine our church traditions in the light of God's word and to be courageous enough to make changes. Friends, simply put, let's make sure that what we have embraced as the living faith of the dead never never is replaced by the dead faith of the living.